Well, good afternoon, Redeemer family. A uh, question for you. you don't, nobody, I'm not going to ask anybody to participate verbally. I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand, so don't worry. I'm not going to trick anybody. Uh, raise your hand if uh, at some point in your life you received a nickname. Family, friend, sibling, coach, friends at school, nicknames. Okay. Uh, raise your hand if the nickname that you received you thought was pretty cool, you really liked it. Raise your hand. Okay, less hands. <laughs> the nick, nicknames are... Uh, you know, they're touchy, aren't they? They're, 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 they can be good or they can be bad, depending on how you got it and who gave it to you. Um, I remember when I was in high school, my friends called me Dunkman. And uh, so I was like, oh, that's cool. Hey, Dunkman. I thought, oh, that's good. And then one of the football coaches one day, and I'm going to do an impression of him, his voice sounded like this. And he, he always finished his sentences like that. And uh, one day he yelled it on the field and he went, Dunker! And I was like, no. And after that, like, it was like, Dunker. I was like, oh, that's not, I don't want that. I want Dunk Man. That sounds good. And so it was like this whole thing, you know, for about a year, a whole football season of Dunker. This morning, we're going to go to a text uh, to be encouraged as we consider coming off this Easter weekend, the resurrection of Jesus, a text about a man who received a nickname sometime in church tradition. Uh, and his name is Thomas, and uh, we all know him as Doubting Thomas. And for those of you who have been in a journey with us at Redeemer, uh, whether you're here or online, and you are thoughtfully sort of exploring Christian faith, perhaps for you, belief in the resurrection, belief in life coming from death has been the hurdle. And this text is, is a tremendous encouragement um, for those who doubt. Perhaps you've been a Christian your whole life, and you don't actually doubt the resurrection of Jesus, but you quite often, and perhaps the, the challenges of this last year, have presented lots of doubts in your life about um, God's care and provision for you, and you find yourself doubting lots of things. This text is good news for followers of Jesus who doubt. It's from John chapter 20. I'm going to be reading uh, verses 19 through to 31. And uh, The reason this is good news for those who doubt is because, of course, at some point, that's all of us. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and he stood among them and he said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them. And he said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they're forgiven. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, he was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told Thomas, we've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and I place my finger into the marks of the nails, and I place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again. Thomas was with them. And although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. And then Jesus said to Thomas, Put your fingers here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. 
Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and have yet believed. Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is God's word. Now, something isn't true simply because we feel it is, or we hope that it is. If something is true, it's true regardless of how we feel. And Christian faith, as I said last week on Easter weekend, is not rooted in experience, even though we have glorious experiences. It's not rooted in ideology. The claim of the Christian faith is true on the basis of an actual event in history. We celebrated it last week, 33 AD, under Pontius Pilate, Jesus Christ of Nazareth was crucified on a Roman cross. And three days later, all of history records that tomb was empty. And as Christians, we believe that Jesus Christ rose from the grave, not because there was a missing body, but because hundreds and hundreds of eyewitnesses saw the resurrected body. And so the reason that we enjoy all the benefits of God in an experiential way, you know, inside us, is because at the cross, God's grace was poured out, a historical fact, outside us. So naturally, Rome would have denied, did deny this resurrection. But here in John 20, we get this gritty honesty of one of Jesus' followers that is doubting the resurrection. And what's amazing to me is that Jesus doesn't appear, amen, sister, is that Jesus doesn't appear all snarky. Jesus doesn't show up and go, where's doubting Thomas? The scriptures don't call him Doubting Thomas either. At some point, some Christian called him Doubting Thomas, and, and the worst nickname of all time, just it sort of stuck. We don't really do that with everybody else in the Bible, right? though we could. I've been rereading through the whole Bible with my sons, Susan and I at home, and we, we've, you know, we're at 2 Kings, and you start reading through it. I mean, you could have a, you could have a terrible nickname for everybody in, in, in the Bible, but we don't, we don't do it. We're not like, hey, here's, uh, we're going to come to the story in Genesis of have my wife Abraham. Uh, you know, he did that twice, or uh, anger management Moses, or peeping David, or murdering David, you know, or abuse of power David, uh, or potty mouth Peter. We don't do this. No, Jesus called James and John the sons of thunder, but that, that, that's not really a term of endearment. When Jesus called them sons of thunder, he was kind of like, you guys are a little aggressive. Uh, so he called them that, you know, if you've raised kids, sometimes you think you have the sons of thunder. You know, sometimes I think I have the Sons of Thunder. I think they're reenacting the bathroom scene from Mission Impossible 6 upstairs. But when Jesus comes to uh, Thomas, he moves in this undeserved, restorative grace and warmth, which is the gospel. Verse 19, and, and later in, in this text, in verse, uh, uh, he, uh, in, in, uh, verse 19 and then in verse uh, 26, he says, Peace be with you. Which is amazing because they slept, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was in the greatest stress of his life. Peter denies him three times. He's cussing out a little girl at a fire. They all fled. They definitely don't deserve peace be with you. What they deserve is, you know, a bunch of unfaithful, unbelieving flip-floppers. This is what they actually deserve. 
And then they are glad when they see Jesus' scars. In verse 20, he comes into their fear. He comes into their doubt. This is God's grace on display. And how he comes into our fear. He comes into our doubt. He got this God who comes to us when we least deserve it. When we are a total mess in our weakness. He comes to restore the unfaithful. He comes to restore the unbelieving flip-floppers. This is uh, the goodness of God on display here. The disciples are hiding. The doors are locked. The text we just read mentions it twice. Right? They, 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 at the first time the doors are locked, they don't believe that uh, Jesus Christ has risen from the dead. They don't believe the women evangelists who come, who witness the resurrection. They don't believe them. They're hiding for their lives. They think they're next. Uh, they fear death. And you know, you and I, here in North America, as Christians, we don't fear uh, physical death. We're not under threat of physical death. But perhaps the form that your fear takes is fear of social death. Fear of vocational death. Oh, well, I will worship Jesus on Sunday, but nobody will ever know uh, outside of, you know, the worship walls of Redeemer, wherever the Vagabond Church happens to be meeting. You know, nobody will ever know because I fear social death. I fear vocational death. I fear, I'm not asking you to be, you know, unreasonable and a crazy person who stands on a soapbox and is really offensive and and, and, and sort of prickly and difficult to listen to and weird and, and to just take a stand for Christ. I'm talking about being wise as a serpent, harmless as a dove, a person of character and love and generosity and integrity, a person who uh, just has the respect of your, of, your, of your colleagues and your peers and your neighbors and your friends so that when the opportunity comes for you to share uh, your warmth and of, of, uh, of uh, your, your faith that you have in Jesus Christ, that this is something that you are bold and happy to do. Not behind locked doors and, and afraid to death about it. And I understand that many of you say, well, Paul, you know, I would share my faith, except for the church is a, seems to be a constant embarrassment. There's one scandal after the next. Somebody's in the paper doing some crazy thing that I don't agree with, and I don't want to be associated with any of that. The whole thing's a massive mess. I couldn't agree with you more. Uh, and if you haven't noticed that since the book of Genesis, God has never had fantastic PR. But the message of the gospel is not, look at the church, look how great and put together we are. The message of the gospel is, look at Jesus and how wondrous he is. You will have no second-hand embarrassment by proclaiming Christ. This is the gospel. This is our mission. It's not proclaiming the church. In fact, every dismal failure of the church is only a testament to our very need of the forgiveness and the grace of Jesus Christ. And so we can struggle with fear of death. We can identify with that because we fear social death. And... Um, when I talk about preaching the gospel and proclaiming the gospel, some of you have sort of bowed out of that. You're like, you know, that's not really, that's, that's kind of what I'm doing, you know, what Paul's doing on Sunday morning, but this is preaching. This is really only one aspect of preaching. To preach means to proclaim, and it just means to be excited about it, to give a te testimony of, and to sort of kind of herald good news. And every single one of you are able to do that. This is not actually what, this is only one form of what preaching looks like, specific to a calling. But 99% of your lives is not in this context. And when I am preaching the gospel to my neighbors and to, in the city and to people I have opportunities to share my faith with, it doesn't look like a 25, 26-minute monologue where I'm sort of like unpacking things systematically. It looks the way it must look for you, just in love and care and generosity and provoking thought and giving a defense for the hope that uh, we enjoy in Christ. But if you notice the flow of all the gospel accounts, the disciples all go from fearing 
for fearing for their lives to being willing to sacrifice their lives. And that radical boldness is not something that we can easily miss. Jesus is strong, and then he comes to the weak, and he makes the weak bold. May Christ, who is strong, come to you and I, the weak, and make us, the weak, bold. Jesus comes and he says, peace be with you. The disciples are glad. And he comes and he appears to them. And of course, when he appears the first time, Thomas isn't there, which is the point of this text. It's the most important meeting the disciples have ever been in. The resurrected Christ shows up. Thomas is not there. Right? Jesus breathes on his disciples. I talked about this last week, this picture of recreation. God breathing life in Genesis. Jesus Christ breathing on his disciples, breathing life in the resurrection. Creation and new creation. Makes you think back to Genesis. You know, Adam, how does Adam get his wife? He falls, God puts him into this deep sleep. And as he's sleeping this deep sleep, his wife comes from his side. How does Jesus get his bride? Well, Jesus Christ, the second Adam, dies the sleep of death. And, and the Roman spear goes into his side. In the same way that Adam's bride comes from his side, we get this glorious picture of Thomas wanting to stick his hand in the side. That's where Christ's bride came, came from. We are the bride of Christ who came from his side, where the blood and the water flowed for our redemption, for our purification, for the forgiveness of our sins. But Thomas misses all of this. Thomas is not there when any of this is happening. Right? God breathed and, and gave life in creation. Jesus is here breathing life in new creation. Jesus is giving his apostles the authority to forgive sins. That might seem like a confusing text to be like, what is Jesus doing here? He says, if you forgive sins, they're forgiven. If you withhold the forgiveness, it's withheld. This is the authority that Jesus is giving to the church to say, how do you do this? If you proclaim Christ, all of those who come to faith in Christ, their sin is forgiven. And as you affirm their belief in Christ and you baptize them, you are, you are affirming their sin is forgiven. Those who deny Christ, those who say, I don't believe, he was an ancient hippie, he was a nice guy, but he wasn't the son of God. Those who deny Christ... Those who, or those who with their mouths say, yeah, no, I'm all about Christ. But then they're like, I have no desire to resemble Christ. The church is given the authority to say, well, there seems to be a disconnect here. If you're going to bow your knee to the king, then may, may you live to the glory of the king. So he's giving this authority to the apostles. But guess what? Thomas isn't there for that. Thomas misses all of that. And so this is important. Eight days later, Jesus comes to Thomas. And then he says, peace. Again, it's amazing. Patience and grace you can't fathom. There is love and forgiveness you and I cannot grasp. Jesus has more sin. I'm, I'm sorry. Jesus has more grace than we have sin. This is what's going on here. Thomas is like, I'm never going to believe it. And gee, look at how Jesus comes. Man, this is such good news for, for the followers of Jesus who doubt. Look at the way Jesus comes. He doesn't just come angrily and drop a smoke bomb like a divine ninja. And just sort of, you know, appear, bring a doubter to me, tremble under my judgment. You, you said you wanted to put your fingers right here? Come here, you coward. This is not the tone. Look at this. This is radical grace of Jesus coming to those who doubt. Let this patience and grace and love encourage all of you who doubt. For those of you parents who have grown children who at one time followed, but have since doubted, and have strayed, may this breathe encouragement and fire into your soul. That though they doubt, though they stray, though they wander, right? To borrow from uh, nine, uh, 18, 
93, Francis uh, Thompson, to use his language, though they wander, the hound of heaven does not cease to pursue in love, in grace, and to chase down those who at one time followed him. This is the picture that we get. This constant beckoning. You know, Thomas already knew the teachings of Jesus, by the way. He already knew the teachings of Jesus. He had the teachings of Jesus. He did not need a one-on-one resurrection encounter if the main thing... Don't charge me with antinomianism here. Just track with me, track with me. If the main thing was just following the teachings of Jesus... I'm not belittling the teachings of Jesus. I've raised my three adult children, well, you know, to, to follow the teachings of Jesus. I've got uh, two adult children and one on the way who have had to navigate the challenges of post-secondary life here in uh, southern Ontario and uh, having a conviction about the things they believe and the ethics that they hold with, with uh, peers who do not share their ethics. So I am 100% on board with unapologetically raising your children to understand and love and appreciate and the teachings of Jesus. But what we all got to know is, if the main thing was just the teachings of Jesus, Thomas already had that. So let that sink in. Because the teachings of Jesus are how we ought to live and what we ought to do. And that's good. But the gospel of Jesus is not about what we do. It's about what Christ has done. And that's not just good, that's the good news. That's the actual good news. And the modern mind and the modern conversation is, hey, listen, let's not get into the business about this resurrection because then we've got to talk about the cross and then we're talking about sin. And if you're talking about sin, now we're into conversations around judgment and what constitutes what is right and wrong in divine judgment. And now we're talking about the afterlife. And as soon as you start talking about the afterlife, you're into conversations about being in the presence of God for eternity or outside of the presence of God for eternity and all of these things about... it just sounds like there could be, you know, conversations that are really uncomfortable for me about judgment, because what I would prefer is that I just set up my life the way that I see everything, and then, you know, inexplicably, the God of the cosmos already agrees with me on all points. I mean, the God of my own construct, that's what I'm about. So let's not get into all the controversy about the resurrection of Jesus. Let's just say, as modern people, the most important thing is we're just loving and caring and follow the teachings of Jesus. False. That's not the most important thing because Thomas already had that. The most important thing is the resurrection of Jesus. And the reason why I'm hammering this is because it is the only reason Christians bend our knee to the Lordship of Jesus. It's the only reason we desire to have our hearts reformed to follow the teachings of Jesus. It's the only reason those of you with little kids who are going to grow up in a, in, a, in a culture where there's many contradictions to the ethics and the teachings of Jesus, it's the only reason for them to say, no, I'm actually going to bend my knee to the King Jesus It's all stemming from the wonder and the worship and the marvel of the resurrection of Jesus. A deep conviction of this truth. And so it's because of this being core to the gospel message, it being a basis of the gospel message, Jesus shows up. Verse 27, he says, Put your fingers here, Thomas. And then he rebuked, it's it's a gentle rebuke, 
to Thomas, put your fingers here. Is this the empirical evidence that you need? Okay, I'm going to provide this for you, Thomas, so that you can be an apostle. Because unless you walk with me and, walk with, and see the resurrected Christ, you can't be an apostle. And because of my love and undeserved grace for you, I want you, Thomas, to be an apostle. So look at what Jesus does. Look at the cosmic lengths he goes to. He comes and he does this. And he basically says, now stop doubting. You read the text as it continues. And he's like, don't disbelieve, but believe. He's like, stop doubting. Trust me. You know, Thomas said he needed to see, he needed to touch the scars. But after the rebuke, he didn't. You know, the text doesn't say he does it. He, he didn't do it. And I know many of you are like, what? No, he must have done it. I've, I, I've, I've seen him do it. I've seen the paintings. He, he definitely did it. No, he, he didn't do it. You just saw the paintings of him, huh? It's, a, it's an awesome artist's rendition. But the point is that in the rebuke, it's like Thomas, what, what does Thomas do when Jesus says, go ahead and do it? Thomas doesn't say, don't mind if I do. Thomas says, my Lord and my God. It's like he sees the absurdity of saying, I need the God of all creation to funnel down and reveal himself to me in this very specific thing that I need. He sees the absurdity. And his response is this radical humility. Ah, my Lord and my God. This needs to be our response. When we come to the wisdom of God's word and it contradicts what we feel, it contradicts our impulses, it contradicts what seems to be natural to us, and the word of God is, is, is guiding us in ways that we need our response it should not be, prove it. Our response needs to be, my Lord and my God. You're asking me to forgive my enemies, my Lord and my God. You're asking me to, 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 to love those who persecute you, persecute me, my Lord and my God. You're asking me to submit to the governing authorities and you wrote that about ancient Rome? No, they weren't exactly legislating things consistent with the Christian worldview. And then Paul's like, the, the very word of God, sub- my Lord and my God, may I be reformed by the goodness of your wisdom, of your word. And of course, it all stemming from this point here, the resurrected Jesus. This is Thomas's response. You know, how have you and I doubted? Now, church, we don't, if you've been a Christian for a while, or you're a Christian for longer than five minutes, you do believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So this isn't your particular struggle. But how do you and I struggle? How do we doubt? We do doubt. How this last year of, you know, 2020 and 2021, have we doubted? How have we been just as worried as everybody else? Just as amped up as everybody else? Just as agitated as everybody else? How have we sort of just echoed and sort of, you know, regurgitated back? How have have we done it? How have we doubted the care and the love of God? How have we doubted his provision? Or doubted his wisdom, the wisdom of his word? You know, if you're honest about it, as I've been honest about it this week, as I've been radically convicted of this text that I'm preaching to you, as I sit in the gravity of how I have doubted God, you know how, how, many, how many seasons of anger I've had in the last year? Anger at the world, anger at this, anger at the government, anger at that, anger at you people sitting here. You know how angry? I mean, I love you guys, but let's face it, sometimes you really tick me off. And you too. You know, like, the, just these human moments of, like, what am I worried about? Why am I freaking out over this? Why am I doubting? 
Why am I so agitated? Why is my ego so fragile and busy? Why can't I just relax in the joy that I proclaim? Why can't I just, you know, be a user of the, this gospel drug that I'm pushing? Tom, Thomas is all of us. There's a picture. And, and, and so praise God. How does Jesus come to the doubters? The, those of us who follow him in doubt. He comes in this just undeserved grace. This beauty and power. To borrow a, a term from Dr. Paul Tripp. It's like we have these moments of gospel amnesia. You know, we don't forget the details of the gospel, but we forget the implications of the gospel. And when that sort of darkness works its way into the unevangelized corners of our hearts, and we sort of manifests in all of these sorts of things. Now, we don't just have this Savior who sort of gets us over the hump in, in difficult times. Consider something for a moment. Who told Jesus that Thomas doubted him and needed this? When you go back and read through the text, who told him? Nobody told him. I'm, I'm, just, I'm, just sitting, I'm just sitting in the seat of Thomas for a moment, where it's like, Jesus knows, Jesus sees my doubt, Jesus is hearing my doubt, he sees and he hears it, and then he comes towards me with this warmth. My Lord and my God. He's watching my failure, he's listening to my failure, and then he comes towards me, in my failure, this radical grace. Verse 29, blessed are those who have not seen and yet believe. Now, I mean, how can we do this without a personal visitation? You know, Thomas got this empirical, you know, visitation. And maybe you're struggling. Maybe you're online listening to this. And the struggle is, it's like, you know, I need this empirical evidence. I need airtight positivism. You know, I've got to be positive with airtight scientific proof before I can believe. Right? I can't get that, so how can I believe? And I, I'm not going to take a lot of time on this. And I mentioned it last Sunday, and I'm going to mention it again for those of you who are here in that struggle or perhaps uh, with us online in the struggle. But if you don't believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you already believe in a world where all life came from lifelessness. You already believe that. So you are already operating, if you are a, uh, an atheist or agnostic or however you choose to sort of identify your, your worldview, naturalism, okay? Uh, you already believe that all life came from non-life. And you don't have an explanation for that. You just believe it. And so you are already operating with reason and faith. You have reasonable... Uh, you have gone through uh, academic reasonable reasons to, to hold the view that you have. But you've also, you are also operating with a degree of faith and reason together because you do not have scientific, airtight, you know, positive evidence as to how non-life became life. I'm sorry. Uh, you know, even the great late Stephen Hawking, who wrote a book called The Brief History of Time in 1988, said even if we could, you know, consolidate the universe down to a set of equations, the question remains, what breathes life into those equations? If even the late Stephen Hawking had the intellectual humility to say, there's something here that cannot be explained, I'm just inviting you into that. I'm just inviting you to see you, you are a reasonable person, but you are already demonstrating reason and faith. And as Christians, we don't abandon reason. It is, it is again, reason and faith, only we are exploring this from a different um, uh, premise, which is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It's all I'm going to say about it. Lots more could be said, but let's have coffee and have that, have that discussion, if that would be helpful for you. 
but to borrow from C.S. Lewis, who was once an atheist writer who came to faith in Christ, he says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun is risen, not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. And so the, the apostles come and they, uh, and they see the resurrected Christ, and Thomas is, has this benefit of, of seeing the wounds, and you and I, church, today, we have... Uh, the good news of the gospel, and we are invited to remember the wounds, remember the significance of the wounds, what they mean. What they mean is that God did not send a great moral teacher who said, clean up your life. God sent a Savior who saved your life. And so the Holy Spirit, not just a force, not some ethereal entity, uh, not a vibe, but the Holy Spirit is a person who is here today, who uh, the third person of the Trinity, he continues uh, to draw us to this place of trust. The same spirit that raised Christ from the dead that day, he will open our eyes, he will open our hearts to believe the gospel this day. Now Jesus did many other things in the presence of the disciples that are not written in this book, but these things are written so that you may have life in his name and believe. Let's pray.